folks, if you will, go ahead and open up to James chapter 2. We'll get there in just a minute. But I did want to start, like for those of you that don't know, I have a little baby brother. His name is Brian, with an I. Um, he's actually just a few years younger than I am. Um, so I, he's a little baby brother still. But we've always enjoyed teaming up on things. We've gotten together, um, gotten along together really, really great growing up. Played ball together in high school, those sort of things. And Brian and I are still very tight today. He lives down in South Carolina uh, with his kids and um, the cousins, and they just carried on some, some fun going down uh, for Labor Day weekend and enjoyed that together. Um, but one of the things Brian and I like to do is joke with my mom. She, I joked with her today. I was like, not everybody gets to preach and use their parents as an object lesson today. And so here we go. I know, this is dangerous, isn't it? But, um, but that's it. One of the things we love to do is play this game of, like, who's the favorite son? Okay? Y'all play that game? You've done it. Like, I'm the favorite granddaughter. I'm the fra- favorite aunt, niece, nephew, whatever, right? That sort of thing. And we joke about it all the time, um, you know, and, and just the different things that have brought us into higher favor, you know, with our parents. It's not just my mom. It's my mom and dad. But we, we joke about this quite frequently. Um, you know, he's gifted them with more grandkids. I've got a beard that a mom can be proud of, um, you know, and, and so these are different things. So uh, j- a couple Christmases ago, Brian and I, they were here, and my mom made us uh, sit side by side and open a gift, and I've got mine here. I, re- I repackaged it. I haven't kept it in this bag. Um, but we opened up this gift at the same time. And it's a t-shirt. There we go. It says, I'm the favorite son. And we both got the exact same t-shirt. So it was, it was funny, uh, right? Like, I can't wear this because who would wear this out in public? <laughs> that would be such a ridiculous thing to wear. Um, but it was hilarious, right? Um, every year there's a, there's a fun t-shirt, something like that. It's, it's kind of what we've come to uh, expect and enjoy. And so that was, that was a good one. It was just kind of that, um, she ended that. I, I don't know, we can't really do it anymore. It's like we both have the shirt, we've been there, we've done that. Um, but the idea here too is that Brian and I know we're on equal footing with our parents, and we always have been. Um, they've made it clear both in word and deed. There isn't partiality between the sons and that sort of thing. Um, there are things that I've done that have honored my parents, and there's things that I've done that have dishonored my parents. And the same with Brian. But the fact still remains that we're still highly valued and favored with our parents. And so um, before we get into our scripture today in James chapter 2, I did want to recount kind of where we went in James chapter 1 and some of the high points of all of that. So in James chapter 1, James tells believers to count it all joy and when trials come and to be patient when, when they do, because they will. And he, asked, uh, he says to ask God for wisdom without doubting, and God will give it abundantly and happily. We're told earthly riches fade, and we're told to expect temptations but to endure from them. And then last week, we took a look at James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27, finishing up that chapter in, in James' letter. And we learned living according to the Word of God is not optional. We must hear the Word, 
humbly receive it and do what it says. And then we were challenged as well to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I don't know about y'all, but this week I was sharing with a couple of you, I may have had Monday off for Labor Day, but it's been one amazing week, I have to say. And it's just funny how um, we're challenged, be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, and then what follows in that coming week. I know I've been challenged and tempted in a lot of ways, and so I hope that that was a blessing to you and that you've been able to um, also think about James' words throughout the week. So let's turn to James chapter 2. Today we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. And in this passage, we're going to read um, what is expected of Christians whose faith is genuine. Uh, James is getting to our hearts, whether we have Christ's love for others in the light of the mercy that God has graciously provided to all of us. So if you will stand with me, we're going to read these verses aloud. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come, in, come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there also should come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You may be seated. Before we um, go into all these things, I do want to go to the Lord in a word of prayer, so if we can do that now. Father, I thank you uh, for your word. I thank you for... um, Thank you for James and speaking to the early Christians, but Lord, speaking to us now through your word. Father, I just pray that we would consider um, our own hearts and our love for others and what that, what that means in light of your forgiveness. And Father, I just pray that you would uh, bless this time. Father, have these be your words. Um, I pray that everybody here would... Um, consider what you have for them today. Father, I ask all this in your son's name. Amen. As we talk through today, I want you to take a look at a couple of key words that we see kind of throughout this entire passage. Those are partiality and mercy. Those two different words are are seen throughout the passage and it's really kind of the thing that James is, is harping on here 
And, um, and so I'd like us to focus on them. The main point um, I want us to take away today is that just as God has been impartial and merciful to us, so should we be that to other people. So his impartiality and his mercy towards us is something that we should show to others as well. As we go throughout the uh, verses um, in this section of Scripture, we're going to break this out into two sections. So verses 1 through 7 really go into that God cares for his entire creation, and so should we. And verses 8 through 13, that God's entire law should be followed. So in, in verse 1, James starts by saying, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. James starts by addressing his brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, and he gives them a very direct command. He's being very, very forceful here. He starts by identifying their faith as that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he clarifies that saying, the Lord of glory. And the Lord of glory is referring to Jesus Christ as the actual full manifestation of God. The Jews, um, the Jews back referred to this as like the Shekinah glory of God, just the full magnificent manifestation of God in, in all of his splendor. And so James isn't mincing words to Jews in the day. He's using language as strong as possible to establish who Christians belong to and under what authority um, and circumstance we're to do the things that he's saying here. And so he instructs Christians to not show partiality. In other words, be impartial. Don't discriminate, prejudice against others, give folks preference over other people. This is what he's talking um, to believers. And he's doing this in a time when James was writing this. This is one of the the earliest letters that we have. Um, And so he's writing writing this in a time in which prejudice uh, was very commonplace, that hatred wasn't just a matter of like ethnicity or nationality, but it also um, expanded out to uh, things like class and religion, um, like the religious background, and all of these things were sources of prejudice in that day. And in that time, most often there were permanent labels affixed to, to people. So we see this. We see Jew or Gentile or rich or poor, free or slave, um, all of these different things. And so people had labels affixed to them, and they were categorized And so, again, this is what James is speaking about. Throughout the New Testament, um, it's it's often stated that um, your unity and that your love for one another is what is going to show um, that God is real and that um, that's how people will believe. And so for the early church, that unity um, was something that stood out against the backdrop of the world that was full of partiality. Uh, And that's what James is getting to. The fact that James is commanding believers at that time to hold their faith um, impartially, it it tells us that it didn't come easily to them and it didn't come automatically. Um, And and that's important. That's the reason he's instructing them. If he didn't didn't instruct them, it's because they didn't need it, right? Uh, And so here here we are. Um, and And James is just really getting to that point, very, very strong language, and he's commanding them something very specific. And then he goes into an example of this, um, which I think is important. It's often a a thing. Sometimes, like, I'll tell my kids to go do something. What's the next word that comes out of the mouth? Why, right? It's a a little teeny word. Um, Why? 
right? Because I said so. Um, but in this case, James is, James is saying, don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. And then he gets into explaining. Um, and so in verse 2 to 4, James says, For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place. And say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? In verse 2, when James is talking about the assembly, when, when if somebody should come into an assembly, he's just speaking to, like the word there is synagogue, but it's meeting place. It's, it's wherever. And so remember, too, as James is writing this, the early Christians didn't have church buildings and everything else. Often they would meet in the house of someone with a lot of means with a bigger house, or they would have like a designated place that they basically rented out to meet or, or is otherwise purposed. We learned much in our study in Mark about the Jewish temple and the various courts and what all of those meant and what was accessible based on your kind of categorization or classification. So we've talked about that for the past couple of months. Um, but assemblies here for the early church were accessible to outsiders, which was unique. And, but this didn't necessarily mean that everybody that came in to those assemblies was welcomed in the same manner or that they were served in the same manner. And that's really what James is getting to here. When he speaks of gold rings and fine apparel, I think we all understand this. They were indicators of wealth of the time, uh, rich folks in, in that time. And in Roman culture, too, would adorn their left hand, like quite profusely with metal, with, with rings, to signify, um, you know, their status and how well off they were and that sort of thing. And there were even um, businesses at that time that would rent out rings for special occasions, which is kind of cool. Uh, there's always been like if there's a if there's a need there somebody's going to meet it and make a business out of it so um, it's just it's just it's fun but I, I guess the point is too is that trying to look good in front of other people isn't something new like it's always been done and um, but that but that's that's it and then when he speaks of a poor man in filthy clothes. This is speaking of just a very poor person, even to the point of being a beggar or being kind of at that level of, of being poor. James is describing right here the true, like, heinous nature of the sin of partiality um, and showing favoritism to other people. And uh, he, he's, he, he's paying attention to, like, by paying attention to the outward, uh, the fine apparel, and them serving the rich man well, giving them a good place to sit within their uh, meeting, um, and in like turn making the, per the poor person in filthy clothes stand somewhere else or sit at a, at a lower place and that sort of thing. James is getting right to the point of the matter, and he's saying it's a matter of your heart. Um, so in, in, in verse 4, James says that those that show partiality and discrimination, they are exceedingly sinful because they've become judges with evil thoughts. They've judged themselves through evil thoughts. 
And some of those evil thoughts come from a place of selfish ambition, thinking that the rich person that's in front of them has something that they can give, that they can gain from that relationship. Or, you know, just, um, you know, like I can gain from this where the poor person that comes in isn't really even able to take care of themselves in some situations. So what could I possibly gain from them? That's kind of the evil thought, and that's, and that's the judgment that, um, that James is talking about here. But I want to contrast this with how Jesus looks at a man. Um, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, um, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as, a man, as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesus said this too in Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. The idea here is that if God looks at the heart of a man, and that's the value, and not the outside, so should Christians, those holding the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. In verses 5 through 7, James goes on. He says, listen, my beloved brethren, has has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? Consistent with Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. James is building on the truth that he established in the first chapter of his letter here. Uh, In in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, I'm going to read those. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. The idea here is that all of the, all of the glory and the riches of this world, they don't last. They're, they're not what matter in the end of things. Um, and James is really sharing that here. He says, he says, those considered poor in this world, either by appearance, by all worldly measure, they're considered rich in faith. And James reminds they are also heirs of the kingdom of God, the one that he's promised to those who love him. So I think, like, let's consider the times in our lives where we have um, placed faith in ourselves. I know we've all done it. I I know I have done it. It may be times in which we feel we have control of situations, um, which we're confident in our abilities, the things that we know we can do. Like, I got this, um, and that sort of thing. Or maybe we're trusting someone else. Maybe we're trusting a spouse or a parent or a friend or a teacher or whatever the case. Fill in the blank. It's true that a rich person may trust God, and that's not the point here that rich people don't trust God at all or that rich people are bad or anything like that. That's not the idea. 
But it, it, it's often when things are entirely out of our control, when the plan is going sideways and things are, things are out of our um, capabilities, going to God is often plan B for a lot. And so we're getting an important truth here. Those poor in this world, both in goods and in spirit, they're not their own rock. They're not providing themselves. There's no, there's no self-provided fortress. And so being rich in faith, really living and knowing um, the Psalm 18.2, it says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Those that are poor in this world, that's what James is getting at. When you're not trusting in yourself and you're, and you're having to trust in God, um, that, that's what James is saying. He's, saying. he's saying, God's chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith because they are trusting in God and they're not trusting in themselves. And, um, and that's just a very important truth uh, to grasp hold of. While we're called to be impartial um, in this passage, um, God is that to, to us as well. And the point here, again, is that God hasn't just only chosen the poor to inherit the kingdom of God or to be rich in faith, but it's really to uproot and like get out of the hearts of people's selfishness, deceitful, deceitfulness in your hearts um, for worldly gain, um, to seek out and remove the pride from the lives of those where these sort of sins flourish. And a lot, a lot of that is for those that are rich in, in this world. Verses 6 through 7 says, But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? James is bringing to memory all of the rich who so often oppress the poor in the time. We've heard it, right, that money is what? It's power, right? Money is power. It was the same, it was the same then and it is the same now. Um, and so not much has changed from that regard. But James is making a case to the believers that when you, we give undue esteem and respect to, to the rich man while you're, you're dishonoring or shaming the poor man, um, the, the idea here is that whether rich or poor, those who take on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, those that are called Christians, those that belong to uh, God, they, are, they have incredible worth just because of that. Just the fact that they're like, you're adopted children of God. You know, I, I know like Amanda and I went to the Weekend to Remember um, thing in Myrtle Beach. And, um, and I've, I probably have said this before. I know I've talked to a couple of you. But in one of the, uh, like we had breakout sessions and it was just dudes in the room. And so this guy was talking with us. And he was just saying, too, and I don't know why this stuck out with me so intensely, but it has, um, how we treat our spouse matters to God because that spouse, if they are a believer and, and, and are saved through Jesus Christ, they are adopted as a daughter of Christ or a son, Right? <laughs> I guess depending on the spouse. But the idea is there is that some, at some point, how would you like to go to God and explain why you treated so poorly his daughter, 
right? The God of the universe. And so, I mean, that, I don't know, that stuck as a poignant point with me. But James is getting to that very right here. He's saying in verse 7, Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you're called? Just the fact that these are Christians, fellow brothers and sisters, they've got incredible worth, whether they're rich or poor, or whatever the case. And so James is just saying, you've dishonored the poor man, but the rich oppress you, and, and they take you to court, and they, and they take advantage of people all the time, right? So the, the idea is there is that there should be no um, esteem or respect given to any one person. It should all be to God, and it should all be to Jesus, and that we all have worth just by being adopted sons and daughters of God Almighty. Verses 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In verses 8 through 9, James is blowing to bits the defense and the excuses, maybe, of people that would show preference to other people. Um, and show preference to the rich man and dishonoring the poor man. That defense being like loving the rich, placing them in a place of high esteem and respect, they may argue the point that it's just a matter of fulfilling what Jesus said was the second greatest commandment, was love, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so he's saying, he's saying, hey, he's, <laughs> he's saying in this section very plainly, good, good, love your neighbor. You do well. Good job, buddy. You know, like we should all do that. We should love our neighbor. Then, the, then verse 9, but if you show partiality, discrimination, preference, all of these things, you commit sin. And then he hits it home. He's putting the nail in the coffin here. The blunt force of sin has met full force. He says, if you stumble in one point of the law, that is you sin, you break them all. That's, that's, that's God's standard. So his standard of good is much different than our own. Um, we can't pick and choose which of his laws we want to obey, uh, which ones we're cool with, and which ones we're not. Um, and Jesus got into this, too, on the Sermon on the Mountain, didn't he? He was talking about the, the heart of the matter. He's saying if you look at someone with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. If you've hated someone or had anger towards somebody without cause, you're murderer. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if, um, if we agree with it or if we don't. It's God's law. And the idea here, too, is that God's standard of good is absolute perfection. Um, we've all sinned. We've all, um, we've all come short of that glory of God. And uh, I would just say, too, any attempts on our part to justify our sin, saying, well, you know what, I've kept most of, most of God's commandments or I do good, all of these different things, it's just like being a good person isn't enough. It's not, it's not any justification. There is nothing good that comes from us to get us to the point of um, reconciliation with God. It's really just an attempt to bribe the judge. Um, 
some of y'all know I used to be a police officer back in the day, um, back when I was uh, younger. I had more hair. I didn't have quite the receding hairline I had going on, so, you know. Um, but it, but it's been years. But I've been in court a lot, um, a lot, um, testifying on cases that you know for people that I've arrested and that sort of thing. Um, I was joking the other day that um, I remember being so nervous getting on the stand one time that I sat there and I swore in. And as soon as uh, I did that, I immediately started right into my narrative of what happened. And the, and the assistant district attorney, she said, hey, Phil, um, Officer McCluskey, please uh, slow down. I'll ask the questions. You know, and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead and do your job, you know. Um, but I just remember being, so, but, it, but w when you're in court, you've got a judge, and that judge is supposed to be just and good and fair and know the law and, and, and know what is guilty. There's different elements of every crime. The elements of God's law is that if you break one, you break it all. That's the, that's the end of it. And, uh, and so it's not enough, like if, if, if Phil is in court, and I've been charged with a heinous crime, whatever y'all want to put on me, okay? And I've done it, okay? I'm, I'm guilty, and I'm about to be sentenced. It's not enough for me to, like, say to the judge, like, look, I did the crime, okay? I'll do the time. But I did the crime, but listen, I've done a lot of good in my life, too. I've done a ton of good. Like, here, and I just start listing out all the different things that I've done or the people that I've helped, um, all of these different things. You know what, judge, I promise I'll never do that again, right? The judge, if he's honorable, if he's just, if he's good, he's going to say, yeah, you shouldn't do that again. You're absolutely right, but we're not here to talk about all the good that you've done. We're here to talk about the heinous crime in which you're guilty. And God, being the all-knowing, perfect, and just judge of the universe, that is his standard. We've all broken his law. But Jesus paid that fine in his sinless, perfect life and with his blood. When Jesus was being crucified, he said, it is finished. He paid that fine we could not. The debt had been paid. It was done. And it's for this reason, if, we've, if we admit that we've broken God's law, that we have sinned against him, if we believe in Jesus Christ and call on his name as our king and our savior, God is merciful and will forgive us our sins, all because of what Jesus did on the cross. This is the law of liberty. It's still a law. We still have to obey it, but it is of liberty. It does free us um, from what we cannot pay. Verse 13 says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I keep going back to the Sermon on the Mount, but it's such a good one. It's, uh, it's Jesus, who better to go to for truth. And, uh, and so in chapter 7 of Matthew, verses 1 through 2, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, he preaches this same message that James is saying here. Um, James says, for judgments without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And here's how Jesus puts it. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For by what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And by what measure you measure out, it will be measured to you. We're called to be merciful as Christians, loving to other people, forgiving, all of these different things. And just as we read earlier in the parable of the unforgiving servant, 
we're commanded to be impartial to others, to love one another as ourselves, and this means showing mercy to others. Our text ends today with the statement, very short one, but a powerful one, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Um, I, sat, I sat on that for a while and just thinking, like, what does that actually mean? Um, and, and, I, and I went, I went back to... I went back to a couple of scriptures. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The thing that stuck out, 2 Peter 3, 9, says the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It says that God's long-suffering towards us. Like, thank God of that. If nothing else, thank God of that, because... You know, I have messed up, and then I've messed up, and then I've messed up, and I'm imperfect. I thank God that he's long-suffering, and that he doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to come to repentance. He wants everyone to know him and to be restored. Romans 5, uh, chapter 8 through 11, I mean, Romans 5, verses 8 through 11, um, say this, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us much more than having been now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Those verses are saying that God loved us. The demonstration of his love for us was that while we were still sinners, where we didn't deserve anything from him, he died for us. He justified us and he saved us from his wrath uh, through, through, his, through, his, uh, through his life. And so again, I want to go back to um, just kind of the, the whole point of this passage and and the main point here that God's been impartial. He's been merciful to us. We should also be that to other people. Um, God cares for his entire creation. So should we. And we need to follow God's entire law as best as we can. But that's, that's his expectation. Um, I'm going to ask us to go to the Lord in prayer real quick. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your sacrifice for us. Father, I pray that while we sit in here, Father, I, I don't know everyone's heart here. I, I don't know. Um, I, I barely understand my own. Your word says that our hearts are exceedingly wicked and deceitful. And Father, um, I just pray that um, as we go throughout this week, Father, that we would regularly ask you to search our hearts, um, to, to seek out any, any sin, um, and in the case of our scripture today, Father, just any um, impartiality, any um, anger, any prejudice that we may have against anybody, um, whether it be something that they've done to us or just, um, just whatever the case, Father, I just pray that we would understand that you've created everyone on this planet, that you would not want anyone to perish that you want everyone to come to repentance. So, Father, I just pray that you would grant us hearts that love other people and understand um, how important and how valuable they are to you. Father, I ask all this in your son's name. Amen.